If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you'll love the 430 Movie, available wherever you listen to podcasts or at 430movie.com. Join us every week as we program exclusive fantasy theme weeks full of the movies you grew up on. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. new episode and we're thrilled to have you join us again for i bet you're wondering what today's episode is gonna be about unless you read the description i don't think they're wondering i think they know exactly they know exactly what they're in for borg again (laughs) resistance is futile i'm not i don't have that don lafontaine growly cool voice next time on the all new star trek the next generation the borg are back the borg are back yeah and you know look here's the thing the thing about the Borg that's so interesting is for a long time, Star Trek was sort of coasting on villains' past. It was bring back the Klingons, bring back the Romulans. Uh, you know, Next Generation had some success certainly later on uh, with the Cardassians, which Deep Space Nine. But we'll talk about all that. First, I want to introduce you. We have a very special guest today. Um, she was executive story editor on Voyager, wrote some of his greatest early episodes, and is a big, longtime Star Trek fan. She had a great time at the Los Angeles Comic Con la- a couple of weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> Um, and um, uh, you worked on a bunch of cool sci-fi shows, including uh, Flash Gordon, Earth Final Conflict, um, Lisa Clank. Hello. Happy to be here. Welcome. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's great to have you here because, um, of course, we're going to be talking about Voyager, which is a show that hasn't gotten a lot of love from this group uh, so far. But, um, you know, vo- in the way that I think that um, Deep Space Nine really define the Cardassians, you know, Voyager was a show that in, in a lot of ways really began to define the um, the Borg. But but before we talk about that, you know, we played a little clip from the Borg invasion in, in uh, Las Vegas. I know both you and Rob have a little history with uh, Las Vegas and We should uh, Star Trek. also mention that uh, Rob Burnett is with us. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just beamed in. Introduce Rob Burnett. I'm so sorry. Rob Burnett is here. I'm like Gary Seven. I just materialized from somewhere across the universe. Well, last time I looked, I just saw this little black cat. Now all of a sudden, Rob is Rob is here. That's true. Um, Rob Burnett is also joining us, Um, and Rob, of course, is a regular on the show. And uh, Rob is not only the writer, director, and editor of uh, Free Enterprise, he also was one of the producers uh, responsible for that fantastic uh, VAM on Star Trek The Next Generation uh, reissues as well as Enterprise. And um, That's value-added material for you folks Yeah, it's out bonus there. features. And um, 
uh, producer on Agent Cody Banks, and he is the producer and star of a new YouTube channel that he created called <laughs> Observations. And, uh, you know, there are few people who are more uh, schooled in the history of Star Trek and uh, uh, more delightful to listen to uh, hold court about uh, what's right and what's wrong with Star Trek than Rob, particularly when he has a drink in his hand. Uh, but um, no, no sorry and brandy for you today. No. But thank you for that introduction. Yeah, no, I apologize. It was belated, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be here. I really should, you know, work on these uh, these introductions. It's it's uh, uh, putting me putting me behind the. So anyway, here. the Borg, the Borg. <laughs> yes, thank you, Darren. Uh, you, um, well, I wanted you to talk about Las Vegas because, of course, Lisa wrote um, the second. Uh, uh, ride film, which was the Borg Invasion, which followed the Klingon encounter, Rob? No. I mean, well, I guess it was called... Yes, yeah. it did follow that. At it the was, Star Trek experience. At the Star Trek experience. And and yes, the, I guess they called it the Klingon encounter. But yeah, I worked on that. Uh, I cut all the videos that you saw in the... Um, museum. In the museum. Yeah. And for a year and a half, uh, that's all I did. It was the greatest job I ever had. Like, every single day, before I even edited, for four four months... I watched 10 episodes of Star Trek and digitized them into the computer before we could start editing. And I would hasten to add, got paid for it as well. And I got paid for it, and we actually shot the 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 Vaughn Armstrong, he played the Klingon captain in the Klingon experience. We shot that those segments on set on the Deep Space Nine uh, episode Shadows of the Empire, mm-hmm. or Soldiers of the Empire, pardon me. Soldiers of the Empire. And, Shadows and of the Empire was something else. Something else. The Completely. Thing. And that was an episode LeVar Burton Prince directed. Prince So when we were setting up to, to do that shoot, it was after they were wrapped that hmm. same day, I, I got to watch LeVar Burton direct. And it was the moment when they all sang that Klingon shanty. <laughs> uh, it was really exciting. And then, of course, it, we spent a year and a half uh, working on it. And it was amazing. But we weren't there. I was gone by the time... You did your, the second, they wanted to add that second ride film. All stations red alert. Brace for impact. I have quantum torpedo. The board have entered the facility. Resistance is futile. Board invasion, 4D. Now open at the Las Vegas Hilton. Because weren't they running concurrently? You could either go on the Klingon adventure or the Borg adventure. And I have to say, uh, as a, as an old veteran of, of Las Vegas, I, I really enjoyed the Star Trek experience. Yeah, me too. I thought I it was too. super fun. They had the restaurant Quark's, uh, Quark's Bar, which had better fries than Dive. You they know? had the magic rings of Beta Z. The Magic Rings of Beta <laughs> What was on that menu? Do you remember? They had some... I only remember some of them. One of them was the Magic Rings of Beta Z, which were onion rings, uh, and they were very, very good. And uh, they, they, of course, the drinks, they had the Warp Core Breach. Oh, yes. Which was presented in this uh, almost like a fishbowl of uh, of booze that they would hand uh, you, and it was it was uh, very lovely. Yeah. Plus, you know, the, the transporter effect that they had created was one of the coolest things Ever because talk about suspension of disbelief. You you would step into what you thought was a room, and they would just pull using a, a counterweight. Well, they would pull. You, they would black out, so you don't know what's going on. Right, right. But they would pull the walls up. Yeah, and and the the transporter set was around you, which you didn't see because the walls were smaller. And when they pulled up 
the walls, you would feel the air rush in. So it actually felt like something happened to you. You just yeah. destroyed the illusion. I thought that they had actually invented teleportation technology <laughs> for that ride. And now you've just ruined the whole illusion for me. Sorry. You're like, Thanks, you know, Rob. Joe Blue. I know. But the first day we did it, like we were, I was back and forth as they were building the museum and, and stuff. The first time we did that, when they had the thing all ready to go, we had to test it. I like teared up a little bit because it was so cool. It was, I was so excited. It, it, it was just, I'm like, how did you do that? Extremely I Extremely like well done. Kid. Extremely and what was well incredible done. is they also made the enterprise available for weddings and bar mitzvahs as well. In fact, I think you had considered having your wedding on the bridge, but true. It, you ended up doing it at the sci-fi wedding chapel instead because it was just... Did we, My, did you, uh, oh, they capped the number of guests. It was a guest thing. Yes, You couldn't right. accommodate enough, and you had so many friends and family that you couldn't fit them on the bridge. My uh, my name was actually on Yars or Worf's station, the horseshoe. My name was actually yeah. on one of the L cars displays. As a do not admit. And it, it's so <laughs> appropriate that they would have the... Uh, Next Generation Bridge at the Hilton because, of course, it looked like a Hilton. Um, so <laughs> my thing, I would also ask you, um, you know, one of the things I loved about that ride film was when the Bird of Prey is over Las Vegas and, you know, you're like over Las Vegas on the ride. That was, it was just super fun. Now, I remember the ride film you did, which was also a terrific fun. Um, and, and I love the way it maintained the sort of in-universe of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, you you were on the show at the time? How did do you remember how you got approached to write that ride film? And maybe tell us a little bit about how it's different writing you know sort of a, a film like that you know ten minute uh, you know audience involved kind of ride attraction from doing an episode which requires a more thought out narrative. Well, I remember that the ride creators producers uh, I forget which company it Landmark. was Landmark yeah. Landmark approached me and said that they were going to do this you know Borg ride film and was I interested? It's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I really remember sitting in this big conference room with a bunch of, I guess, executives and engineers and designers and talking about, you know, kind of walking through the ride and, you know, it was going to be, you know, this shuttle that was going to be grabbed by the Borg and pulled into a cube. And then we were going to actually have the Borg Queen, which I thought was really exciting, and that she was going to assimilate the guests. And they were going to do this effect where you saw on the the, four, the 3D screen, you know, these um, nanotubes, I guess, shooting out right. of her fingers. And then they were going to have something poke out of the chairs to, to like, yeah. in the back of somebody's neck. And I remember having this conversation for about half an hour about whether it was going to be too scary, mm. whether we were going to actually give somebody a heart attack thinking that they were being assimilated Mortified. by the board. <laughs> it was pretty scary. It I was, have to say. It, it was, was pretty, pretty intense. Scary. It was a lot more scary than the time I got turned into a minion at Universal Studios. That was not quite as, <laughs> as, as traumatic as when I got turned into a board. But it was it was a lot of fun, I got to say. Um, just talking about, I mean, the budget obviously was bigger than, you know, most episodes. Mm-hmm. And so talking about how we were going to do the point of view and coming up with the concept of avian drones, mm-hmm. which we had never been able to do on the series, right. of course. Sure. But we figured it makes sense. There's got to be some alien species that fly. They get assimilated by the Borg. So let's have some avian drones. Cool. And then the other fun part of it was getting to write for the doctor. Mm. Um, everybody loves writing for the doctor because Bob Picardo just knocked it out of the park every time. I mean, he would make things funny, whether they were funny or not. And so getting to write for him, you know, both in the line and kind of explaining, you know, what was going on and then getting to write for the board queen was fantastic. 
Uh, so it was it was really a fun experience. Yeah, Barb Picardo is uh, you know I had a chance to work with him I think you know as well and he's just a delightful guy, super fun, uh, super talented. I mean, you wrote one of my favorite episodes with the doctor, which was Message in a Bottle, oh, thank um, you. which I you know I think he's great in. It was a great you know early season episode. Um, so I want to ask you because you know we're talking about the Borg invading Vegas, but you know the Borg really became the seminal Star Trek villain and 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 what's so interesting was because you know in the in the early days of next generation Roddenberry was very much against even having a klingon on the bridge that's mm-hmm. how much he wanted to resist you know sort of the old tropes of of the original series and it was David Gerald and Bob Justman DC Fontana that really argued that this is a great idea because this is still during the days of Glassnot the wall hadn't even fallen to show the Klingons now working with the Federation. It was right. a really powerful statement in the best of, uh, you know, the classic Star Trek moralizing. Uh, and uh, and then you had, you know, then they said, absolutely, we're not going to bring back the Romulans. By the end of the first season, um, <laughs> everyone brought back, back the Romulans because, you know, it just nothing was working, you know, and, uh, and, and you have, you know, it ended... It was a big prologue, that episode. The finale was, if you remember, Neutral Zone. You know, it, it, the whole episode basically builds up to we're back and then second season nothing nothing yeah so <laughs> so 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 you have that but so it was really clear that star trek needed a, a new villain and they got one in, in in an unjustly overlooked episode people always say oh best of both worlds but they forget that it was q who that introduced the borg and right. it arguably might still be the best borg episode second season Next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation, the evil Q returns. What do you want, Q? My purpose is to join you. No. And Picard faces Q's wrath when the Enterprise is hurled into a living nightmare. We have an intruder. Now the crew is helpless against an invincible race of alien killing machines. You can't outrun them. You can't destroy them. On Star Trek, The Next Generation... What do you think, Rob? Well, it's it's funny when we were working on the uh, remastered Next Generation episodes. That was a one we really wanted to see because it was the first time you saw the interior of the Borg cube, and they had the there was a great matte painting that they redid for for the a digital matte painting that they redid for the restoration. But I what I loved about that episode was to me that's the only episode of Star Trek really where the Borg lived up to their promise of what they really are. Mm-hmm. And to me, the Borg were always scary because there was no central hub. There was no – they were literally like a swarm of locusts right. that didn't have some kind of hive intelligence behind them, and they hadn't been humanized, and they were just terrifying. Right. That episode is terrifying. When 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 you, you open up the drawer and there's the little Borg baby, yeah, yeah and you realize creepy. that mm-hmm. – it was really, really creepy, and the way they would just walk past the crew when they beamed onto the ship, right. the, the Borg cube, they didn't care. I mean, the, the Borg have no – I always thought that it was artificial intelligence gone horribly wrong. Like something, something really bad happened somewhere, and technology ran amok, and that's the result. And the result of it was they just didn't care. They just wanted to assimilate more – I, I always saw the Borg as neurons, mobile neurons, mm-hmm. and that's what they were. That's it. And they were part of this and this this expansive brain that really just wanted to take over all biological and technological right. uh, distinctiveness and add it to the big brain. And eventually it would have encompassed the galaxy and then eventually the universe. 
And that's what I always saw it as. And and that was it. And as we moved through this, both, well, through all the series, the Borg became more and more and more human-like. We had to add Unimatrix Zero, and we had to add all you know, these poor people that can come back from being Borg, you know. And it was, it, to me, it was like, they're not scary anymore. There's, it was scary because they weren't an individual. It was a force. And you couldn't reason with them because there was no one to reason with. No, there yeah. was no one to reason with. They were they were like a, a an artificial intelligence that had become almost like a hurricane or some kind of a a natural evolutionary force of literally of nature for the, the everything bad that could happen happened. Well, I think that with any villain, the more you explain it, the less scary they get. Sure. You know, I mean, I think about Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter was terrifying. And then once you had Hannibal, he got less scary. And then the TV series, sorry, Brian, <laughs> also he just became, again, more human and more understandable and less terrifying than he was in like, you know, 15 minutes in Silence of the Lambs. And I think it's the same with the Borg, that the more you explain them, the less intimidating they are. Well, you know, it's interesting because you said something about the ride film that you were concerned potentially you know, it could be too scary for the guests. And, and the thing I like about Q Who is the one time the Borg are really scary. And it's a combination of the music and the eeriness and the fact that, and we, you know, the Enterprise loses in that one. <laughs> if it wasn't for the intercession of Q, they would have been destroyed. Right. You know, they're impossible to beat. They're impossible to reason with. You know, yeah. eventually and in every other episode, we was totally not ready for. Not like ready for. So it captures sort of the danger and, and weirdness of space. And it's a real credit to Maurice Hurley, who um, the late Maurice Hurley, you know, for coming up with them. You know, you look at it now, you say cyborg, Borg, cyberpunk, you know, OK, it's sort of cheeseball. But the execution, Rob Bowman's direction and certainly Ron jo- Jones' magnificent score that really elevates that episode and makes it something special. Yeah, and it was great because you also had. Guinan and Q in that episode as well, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. which was a we- like you the Borg were enough, but then you realize that Guinan and Q knew each other. Mm-hmm. You know there was all there was a lot of interesting a lot of layers, stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of layers to that episode. You have that scene was, where they're going like this to each other, right? It, yeah, and it was it was a lot of uh, <laughs> yeah. it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was there was a lot of Star Trek mythology laid down in that episode sure. that they would revisit. That's why I'm always surprised that it's often overlooked. People always go back and talk about how Best of Both Worlds, the show that changed Star Trek. And it did in a sense that, you know, in terms of dealing with character, it's And it a did very in a strong... sense that it actually made people want to come back for the next season. Right, for the next season, yeah. being a cliffhanger. But, you know, Q-Who, you know, is a pretty, you know, and it's in a desert of terrible shows. I mean, the second season is not a particularly strong season. And, Except uh, the Royale, right, Mark? Oh, man. That, that hurts, Rob. That hurts. You know, Matter of Honor is pretty good. The, yeah. You know, the, the, the Klingon Exchange uh, mm-hmm. program. And so, there, I mean, there are episodes that are good. And the, the idea of the Iconians is introduced in the second season. Which is a better concept than execution. That, that, it, it, yeah, that That's a great uh, uh, thing. You know, it's also Maurice Hurley always talked about how Times Squared was going to be the prelude to the Borg. And then now it's just this total mess of an episode. <laughs> Um, but you know, whatever. So we go from uh, Q Who um, to Best of Both Worlds, which to many people uh, is, is considered the the best Next Generation episode. Um, well, you know, uh, either that or Yesterday's Enterprise. And it, if you ask most people, you know, uh, how do you feel that that sort of cemented the Borg as, as Star Trek's primary antagonist? Terrence, like, ah, yeah, don't look at me. I, you know, I like the Klingons. I think that's when, that's when the Borg started to go for me downhill mm. because yeah. they had to give a – they turned Patrick Stewart, which is brilliant, 
turning Patrick Stewart into a Borg, but then he gets turned into Locutus, literally a spokesperson. Like the Borg suddenly need a spokesperson. The mouth of the Borg. (laughs) Right, which means, okay, then that presupposes that the artificial intelligence- He's the Huckabee Sanders of the Borg. Well, (laughs) that the hive mind or whatever the Borg is made this decision. Like contemplated somewhere that, you know, if we're going to assimilate Earth, we're going to need a spokes- spokesperson. Well, they didn't feel that way about all the other the, the creatures that they'd assimilated before now. And, you don't and, know that. They might have had spokespeople for other aliens. Well, that's true. You're, you're, you are correct. That is true. I, but, but it just, to me, it was like, once you put, I mean, it was cool to see Patrick Stewart turn into a villain. That yeah, was really it cool. Was. I think I know what you're and trying to say. I think once, once, it turns out that the Borg have to do something to deal with us in a different way. That means that we are more of a threat to them and they aren't as powerful. The, the, yes, yes. I mean, I, I, they were no longer scary to me. Mm-hmm. Not as scary as a faceless, mindless horde that's going to come at you and there's nothing you can do about it. They were, they were essentially the cancer of the universe. And it was a, it was a virus that you could not cure. Mm. And, well, it was like and, zombies in a way yeah. sure. that, you know, if you get bitten by a zombie, you turn into one. And the individual is not quite as scary as the, the massive right. horde that is going to follow. Absolutely true. The yeah. zombie analogy is actually a really good analogy that I hadn't really thought about. And it is. I mean, it, you know, because literally when they assimilate you, it's, it's, it's like the zombie mythology. I think the problem you have then after Best of Both Worlds and I, I really love the first best part of Best of Both Worlds because, you know, to me, I think the Riker drama is it's very interesting with mm-hmm. him and Shelby um, and, 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 you know, the, the problem that's going on there, you know, whether he's going to move on. And that all comes from the feeling that Michael Piller had at the time, whether or not he would move on. And they say sometimes, write what you know. The best stories come from something you're passionate about. Right. And instead of writing these sort of techno uh, nonsense, for lack of a better word. This was coming from a real human dilemma. In this case, it was Michael's. And you know, he's deciding, do I want to be pigeonholed in Star Trek? Do I want to keep doing this? Do I want to use the sort of um, uh, stuff that I got out of Star Trek, the, the, the fact that it's getting good reviews and that I've, I've come and I've turned the show around and I want to use this to move on and do something else. Plus, that third season was a, you know almost killed a lot of people. I mean, there were a lot of, as much as people look back and say, oh, it's a season where everything changed on Star Trek, behind the scenes, it was brutal. And um, As Ira Bear told me, he said, when I arrived for season three, it was already in the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> yeah. and, Ira, and Ira, of course, walked away at the end of that season, eventually being lured back and very reluctantly. Um, but, you know, so, so Michael was really struggling with a lot of these things in his own life, whether to move on, you know, whether he had accomplished what he set out to do. And, and that's all in the Riker character and uh, the conflict with Shelby played brilliantly by Elizabeth Dennehy. Um, then you have, uh, he, you know, he decides, oh, I am going to come back. And the funny thing is he set up an impossible situation for himself with the cliffhanger mm-hmm. thinking he's not coming back. Right. So let someone else figure it out. Well, he got stuck having to figure it out. And it's not nearly as satisfying uh, part two. Yeah, you, you sense a little bit of uh, backstepping on, on the uh, premise. Well, and also, that was the one thing that, that defined the Borg, the, the Best of Both Worlds Part 2, is that you could no longer be a Borg. If you were Borgified, yeah. you could then suddenly be cured of your Borgism. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that was the, to me, that was the end of, of the real end of the Borg, because the entirety of Borg involvement all the way through the end of Voyager was all about human beings coming back Does from being Does that count Borg. as a pre-existing condition, Borgism? <laughs> I just want to <laughs> say uh, just a little bit about... Um, 
something that people may not uh, realize the connections with. I, sometimes people say that the the look of the Borg uh, owes a lot to H.R. Giger and his sort of uh, biomechanical design. I have to say that I think a lot of it actually comes from Captain EO at yeah. Disneyland. <laughs> That's interesting. Because you have a queen and her minions, you know, pop out of the uh, walls and the columns and they the planet looks like the Borg planet. It's, it's all covered with I stuff. I may be able to validate that theory. Because you know who they wanted to cast, who their first choice and first contact for the Borg Queen was. Angelica Houston. Angelica Houston, hmm. who was the queen mm-hmm. in Captain EO. Interesting. So you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and then, you know, the problem, unfortunately, is, you know, uh, you know how sparingly are you going to use the Borg? Because right. unlike the Klingons, which could come back multiple times a season, or even the Romulans, uh, you say every time you bring them back and we win, it diminishes them as sure. a threat. Um, so you bring them back in Descent, I, I rather I Borg, which is a very slight story. It's a Jonathan Del Arco is a, a, right. a Borg, Hugh, uh, Hugh the Borg, Hugh, Hugh. Hugh the Borg, who, who humanizes the Borg even more. And human. It's funny because <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't get that either. Apparently, I wasn't watching carefully enough. Um, but the um, the idea that they you know they they have a chance to kill the Borg to wipe the Borg out of, right. out of existence. Of course, Picard decides not to do it, which is what I love about the Battlestar Galactic episode, where they're given the same choice, and Adama and yeah. Mary McDonald are like, Absolutely. "Fuck yeah, we're gonna." <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's only because Hilo gets involved that it doesn't happen. But that was what was so great about Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica was always doing the opposite right. of what Star Trek did. But they, you know, that was. Also, in, in, in I, Borg, you have Picard making an impossible choice. He's going to commit genocide. And obviously, he because of his own experience, he can't ever make that choice because he did come back. And he's like, all of these people could possibly come back. And I think it would have been more interesting, like you just said, because he was a Borg and he knew what the threat actually, mm-hmm. what it was. He should have been like... We can't risk it. See, that's so much more interesting. Because then they later on they wrestled with the consequences of of Picard's rape, for lack of a better word. I mean, that was the word they used in the writer's room. It's like if Picard had been, yeah, we're going to wipe them out, and like Riker and everybody else are like, you yeah. cannot commit gen-. Like that is a that's much more interesting, more interesting story. Yeah. But the problem is, again, this I, this misinterpretation of the Roddenberry mantra that there can be no conflict between our perfect humans in the 24th right. century, but that's drama. And that is a far more interesting version of Q, uh, I, I Borg than the one they made. Well, they could have called John Anderson and gone back to the third season episode, The Survivors, and said, look, you know what you did to the Husnock? Why don't you just Save do that, that for what we do unappreciated, because I think we have to do most <laughs> Star Trek's most under underappreciated episodes, of which The Survivors is clearly... One, but we, uh, Rob and I love that episode, and no one else does. So we'll have to we'll have to talk about. It. You know which one we're talking about? Uh, I'm not actually real up on my original series episode. No, no, I'm this, sorry. Is, this is next gen. It's a third season episode where there's this old man and his wife. Oh, I do remember that one. Living in okay. a house. Okay, and they're I gotcha. on location, and they're the only house on the planet. The only house. Everybody else has been wiped out, and the Enterprise thinks maybe they're collaborating with the Don't aliens. Don't spoil the episode. Okay, anyway, <laughs> too late. Spoil it. Spoil we it. both <laughs> love that episode, and I'm not quite so did sure Frakes, why. By the way, Frakes loved doing that because he, had, John Anderson, had played his father. In, was it North and South, I think? Yeah, and he's so good. So good. And there's location filming. They're not on these fakey fake stages. It's like it looks good. It's just it, I, everything about it is great except the name the Hoosnock. 
who came up with that? But the you know back to the the Borg thing. <laughs> back to the Borg already. <laughs> but in progress. No, but, uh, with that episode though, it it then became the Borg were for forever human made to be human. Whenever you saw, they were no longer the Borg. They were they were the species that they used to be before they became assimilated by the Borg, and they could go back to being that species again. Right. But there was an interesting thing. I think it was in First Contact where uh, Picard is basically, you know, tells, I, I guess, Alfred Woodard to kill mm-hmm. one of the crew members who's being Borgified. And he says, you'll be doing him a favor. Imagine a race of beings possessed of one mind, driven by one will, intent on one purpose, to seize our past and control our future. Set a course for Earth. Maximum warp. Now, one captain against orders. Red alert! All hands to battle stations! Must succeed where all others have failed. Looks like the control deck's 26 up to 11. They have assimilated more than half the ship. Surrender yourself or we will destroy your ship. The line must be drawn here. On November 22nd, resistance is futile. Star Trek. First contact. So in a way, you could argue that Picard would have wanted to destroy all the Borg because he would have known that the individuals who had been Borgified were suffering. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the problems ultimately with Picard, you know, suffering is that it was dealt with so well. In one of the great Next Generation episodes, Family, which followed the mm-hmm. Borg arc, which uh, that Best of Both Worlds two-parter, which is so phenomenal. It's such an atypical show, but it's all about Picard coming to terms with his Borgification. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrific episode written by Ron Moore. I forget who directed it, but it's... Uh, it was good, so it couldn't have been Cliff, uh, Cliff Bolt. Um, so <laughs> no, I, no. it was it was uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful episode, and uh, there's great performances and and um, uh, just really, really wonderful episode um, in terms of of Picard confronting what had happened. And even better if you enjoy wine. Yes, and if you enjoy wine, <laughs> then you will really enjoy that episode. Um, and then, of course, the last time that the Borg make an appearance in Next Generation is Descent, which was an attempt to recapture the magic of uh, uh, Best of Both Worlds. And if you loved lore and data lore and brothers, <laughs> guess what? He's back for more. So let's not just make it about the Borg. Let's bring back lore, too. Yeah. Anyone? Bueller? What a shattering <laughs> disappointment. Descent one and two were. I mean, I I I was so excited. By the way, that episode makes not a lick of sense. Where did the, there's a brand new Borg ship that apparently the the lore led Borg have built? How did they do this? Where did they come from? I mean, it's the it's same the, way we kept replicating shuttlecraft. <laughs> Clearly, they had a really huge they, replicator. A really huge replicator. And but what I what I really hated about Descent one and two was that lore is the messiah. Of the Borg, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that these disenfranchised Borg that have been cut off from the collective are now wandering around somehow. You know, when you are Borgified and then you become unborgified, your mental faculties come back to you, and apparently you're left in some some childlike state where you cannot function. 
I don't know why this was the case, but this is what they've dis- they were. There's a lot of Borg mythology being laid down here. I thought in my mind bad Borg mythology, <laughs> and then Lore comes along and and he becomes the messianic figure to these, the, and, and then they start following him. I what mean, if there's been... any way to emasculate <laughs> a, a villain, yeah. this was the way you do it. Wouldn't it been more interesting if, if Lore had become a Borg? You know, because it was always about Sung wanted his children to become more human. And so the Lord. idea that Lore, who was more of an android, becomes more human by becoming a Borg. Right. I don't know. It's just like there's so much you could do. Although, why do you need Lore? It's all this Borscht Belt, Brent Spire bullshit. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, it's like, who needs that? I mean, they keep bringing back the doppelgangers. I mean, they did it in Nemesis. It's like, I don't need to see Brent playing multiple characters. I know everybody loves to see that, but it wasn't that entertaining. Sometimes you need a big Brent break. Well, I mean, I think, look, a lot of this had to do, too, with when you spoke about Michael Pillar. When he came on in the third season, what he did was the greatest thing in the world for Next Generation is that he, he made the conflict not about what was outside, not these external threats, but they always had to be his mandate. Was they were, These stories had to be about our crew. Everything had to be filtered through the eyes of our main characters, which I thought was brilliant, and, and it made Next Generation from the third season on the wonderful show that it became. On Voyager, I remember that he would always ask, who is this about? Mm-hmm. It, always, it was like, which character or characters is it about? You know, whatever else the plot was, you know, it wasn't what's the story, it's who. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whose story is it? And, Always. And they, that's when yeah. the, the Borg, I mean, for the Borg, in a way, by making them more human is much more of what a Michael Pillar, kind of the influence that he brought to the Borg when he wasn't there when Q Who was, was done. Well, I think season. also Michael was a much different person than Hurley. You know, Hurley was a Machiavellian, sort of nihilistic... <laughs> you know, son of a bitch. I mean, you know, that's who Hurley was, you know. And so the Q, the Borg reflected, you know, his personality, whereas the Borg of Next Generation reflected Michael, who was much more, uh, he's a family man, he was a much, uh, uh, he was a thoughtful, um, you know, kind person. Uh, and, 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 you know, the evolution of the Borg sort of reflected the kind of person that Michael was as a kind of the person, just as the way that later on the Borg reflected Brannon, who sort of became the way that Ron Moore was the Klingon guy. You know, Brannon sort of became the Borg guy, um, which we'll talk about. But first, you know, we have to look at First Contact because uh, after Generations, which was uh, a critical and financial sort of in the middle, you know, it, it could have gone either way. It wasn't clear whether or not Next Generation would have the legs to be a franchise. They they knew they had a lead with their, the next one had to be their con in a sense. It had to be their biggest villain. It had to, you know, have scope and, and, and be big. So the decision was made very early on to do the Borg and do time travel, the two things that have worked consistently for the franchise. Now, originally, the plan had been to do time travel to, like, Renaissance England or, right. you know, and... and Patrick put an end to that really quickly by saying, I'm not going to run around in tights. I've done that enough in my career. And uh, <laughs> so they then, you know, said, well, we don't, Berman didn't want to do the 20th century because he felt it was hokey to come to our time. And we could talk about that, but you did uh, Future's End, which brought the Voyager cast to contemporary Earth, which uh, the shows hadn't done since the original series. And I, I agree it was a little hokey. Um, I I think I, I tend to agree that putting it in in the present first of all it dates it more mm. and i i do think it was just a little bit hokey to try and 
especially like the the um, Sarah Silverman character. No, no slam on Sarah, but I mean the character I think was meant to represent twentieth century people, mm-hmm. right? And that was that's an awful weight to put on a particular character. <laughs> right, right. Anyone to represent that. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think I tend to agree that setting it in the present is awkward. I love. I read an interview with Sarah Silverman once where she says, you know. I get recognized a lot still after all these years for that Voyager. And I can always tell when somebody's going to come up to me and say, I loved you a Voyager. She says, I know exactly who that person is. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, get a life. Um, but-, but I think it was a really good choice in First Contact to to kind of incorporate the, the Trek history of the First Contact. I thought that was that was a really good choice. I mean, you know, the original plan when they did the marketing materials uh, was to call it Star Trek Borg. And I remember at the time, Sherry Lansing says, what the hell is what's we're that? Not, yeah. What's yeah. Borg? We're not, you know, is it's it a tennis, tennis player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, we're not calling it Borg. And that's where First Contact came from. Right. And then they say, well, you know, that's an episode of our show. And it's like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no uh, one, no one cares. No, 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 no one cares. But uh, but you know, first contact I think really cemented the Borg as this sort of legendary antagonist for contemporary Trek. You know, when I was writing for you for Sci Fi Universe magazine, I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, the article I was going to mention. I I wrote an article with Dave Hargrove why First Contact was the worst Star Trek movie. Mm. <laughs> wow! And yeah, it was. I was very angry when I first. Not as angry as you were when you saw Generations for the no, first no, time. Nobody's ever been as angry but, in his human existence I, as when I saw that. The movie. Look, Frakes did a great job directing. Like you said, the first contact with the Vulcans was great. I loved the first flight of the Phoenix, Goldsmith's score. But to me, it just it was a a big rehash. You know, it was this rehash of what we'd seen in Best of Both Worlds, with the added. Alice Krieg as, as the board queen, who admittedly was awesome. Yeah, she was amazing. And and the, when she gets put together, that one effect shot when her torso is sort of dropped into her leather domination dominatrix suit <laughs> into her Cenobite outfit. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, yes. all that stuff was really cool. But again, it just further took the Borg away from suddenly. You know, there's a femme fatale Borg. And and while it was cool, and then Picard's running around like you had mentioned earlier, killing his own crewmen, you know, just get rid of him. Kill, I mean, he he'd been brought back. He knows full well that these people are not. He'd already stopped Borg genocide, right? And and now he's just no 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 <laughs> kill them all. And it just I, as I watch this, I'm like, wait a minute, you've already dealt with everything in this episode, uh, this film. You've already dealt with it more beautifully in the TV show than you're dealing with it right now. And it was Ron and, and uh, Brian wrote that. I think it was a really smart decision to use the Borg at that point. Absolutely, you know? I think that uh, it was. You know, it really it belonged to Next Gen. You know, this was something that was. It wasn't them going back and mining the mythology of the original series. So they owned the Borg, and like using the Borg was. I mean, John does a great job directing it. And yeah, I mean, you absolutely could make that argument that uh, there's things that are too redolent of. Um, uh, of the series or, or plot threads that had, had been resolved. But, you know, coming on the abomination that's Generations, it, you know, it really engaged an audience. It did great, uh, you know, financially. Um, uh, critically, it was it was well-liked. You know, it really gave a pulse to that Next Generation franchise, and it, it validated the Borg as a antagonist, I think. But on and the I- other hand, you also have to sort of take a step back and say, this plan that the Borg had is really not good. 
I mean, why on why would they go back to this time? You know, why when they could go back? You know, to medieval England or you know wherever. Uh, it's just it just doesn't make any sense that they would have to stop. You know, mankind at that point. Well, if you're saying that mankind that they saw us as more of a threat than than most other kind of aliens, then preventing us from becoming the center of the Federation, that would make all of the other species easier to pick off, presumably. I suppose. But the the thing is that, that, that they're actually, you know, dealt with fairly easily in the film. That, you know... The, the Borgar? All, yeah. Um... And it, it it doesn't really take much activity from our crew to foil their plans. And you know, with the with the rickety rocket taken off and the the Vul- the, <laughs> the Vulcans uh, seeing, oh hey, look there, there there's uh, new new people in the neighborhood. Um, it just seems really flimsy. I want to go back to, to the thesis of our podcast, which is about celebrating our love of Star Trek. And I <laughs> yes. think that if we go down this rabbit hole of what doesn't work about First Contact, we're going to get to a very dark place. <laughs> well, no, but you open the door. Look, I think, though, that, that, like you'd said, the movie's fun. It's a lot of people's favorite Star Trek movie. Sure. But as a science fiction fan, I mean, look, I've revisited First Contact many times, and I've, I, I thoroughly enjoy watching it now. I do. I love when they're... The battle on the deflector dish of the Enterprise. That's one of yeah. my favorite scenes in any of the movies. It's so cool. I mean, they just do things in that that you, you've always wanted to see people walk around on the outside of the whole, the whole. And we did see a little bit of that at the end of Star Trek The Motion Picture. It was so cool when the crew rises up and they're standing on the top of the saucer section. Well, the way they shot that and how it was all inverted, and it was it, it was a childhood fantasy made well, flesh. What I I love about, I'll tell you what I love about that, uh, what I love particularly about that sequence, is the fact that so much of the Star Trek movies is so much rehash of things they've done better in the episodes. You know, it's true of the original series movies, it's true of the Next Generation movies, that, you know, a really great episode of either series is better than any of the movies, you know, is my feeling. So it was so refreshing at First Contact to see something we hadn't seen before, which was the, you know, using the the, the feature film medium, but also coming up with an idea that was original, and budget, yeah, to do something really original. And and, and it's it's, it's a great place to set a... you know, it was the same way I felt about um, in Star Trek VI during the Zero G yes, uh, the assassination. assassination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just like, oh, that's cool. I haven't seen that before. Right. That's clever. Well, the opening shot of First Contact, that pullout from Patrick Stewart's eye, and then you see the whole gigantic innards of the Borg ship, and he's he's yeah. he's remembering what it's like to be Locutus again. That was awesome. Yeah, you know, yeah. Come on, yeah. I was there yeah. when they shot that. I remember that. That was great. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. great. And and there's and Jonathan Frakes talked about how. Here he was getting up to direct on the big screen and how he'd look back at all these different action films and looked at James Cameron's Aliens. And and you could tell there was a, a, a joie de vivre. In every, all the actors were clearly having a great, great time making that movie. I mean, yeah. so there's that element. And Alfred Woodard is great and James mm-hmm. Cromwell. I mean, we used to bitch and moan that that's not Zephram Cochran. But, you know, <laughs> and, and the 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 the... the the jukebox in Montana. <laughs> but still, there's something about the movie as a whole where the, the cast is having such a good time, and yeah. it is fun to watch. That's not Zephyr Cochran. That's Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's who that is. Yeah, yeah. yeah just the way that uh, uh, in Generations, it's not Captain Kirk, it's Bill Shatner. Right. That's yeah. correct. And the score. 
Oh, the, the, oh yeah. The Jerry Goldsmith score, that piece of music when the Phoenix is launched, it's just, ugh, what a great piece Well, Jerry's of never done a bad score for a Star Trek movie. No. I mean, he's done very few bad scores ever, but, <laughs> you know, all his Star Trek scores are great in their own way. But I, I want to know, when you guys were on Voyager and you wanted to bring the Borg in, mm-hmm. um, how you went about sort of taking all this backstory and all this stuff that we'd seen before and funnel it into an interesting thing for the Voyager show, you know? Well, I think that we knew that we wanted to bring in the Borg at some point. I think that had probably been in everybody's mind from the beginning. And the idea of just having them as an adversary, I mean, it had been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they specifically looked at I, Borg, you know, and the Hugh character and I think that was really in everybody's mind about what if he had stayed, mm. you know, what and, and again, the trauma that, you know, Picard had been through being in a fairly limited time that he was Borg. What if you were assimilated when you were that baby in the drawer? Sure. What if you had essentially grown up Borg and then find yourself amongst humans? And I think it it also tapped into like Data and the Doctor and Odo in Deep Space Nine, you know, non-humans who were trying to become more human. Mm-hmm. I think that was sort of a recurring theme on Trek, and Seven was essentially our, you know, non-human trying to become more human, but not really happy about it. I mean, mm. she wasn't like the doctor in that he really wanted to be human. She actually kind of wanted to go back to being sure. Borg for a good long time. Because that's all she knew. Because that's all yeah. she knew. Um, and I think that was kind of the genesis of it. Um, and I think Seven turned out to be a terrific character. I, I would take a step backwards because I would say, you know, I feel that uh, Voyager was struggling the same way Next Generation did in its early days for who their villains were going to be. Mm-hmm. And there was, it seems like there was reluctance to sort of, even though, oh, it's the Delta Quadrant, that's where the Borg are from. Let's try and come. So you had the Kazon, which Michael Pillar would be the first person to admit did not work. Did not work. Right. Uh, and then you had more interestingly the Vidians who uh, in, were introduced Vidians. in Vidians who were introduced in Fage, who are really interesting alien, but I'm not sure how many times you could really go to that well. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, was the problem when having a premise of the show that we were heading in one straight line as fast as we could go. Right. And so having <laughs> any kind of recurring villain or recurring character was always going to be a challenge. Yeah. But with the Borg, you could buy that they were all over the universe. Sure. And you could run into them as many times as you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought, you know, it was what you guys were faced with after I, Borg. You did, I think, you took the Borg in the direction they had to go in. Like, you had to go. And I thought Seven of Nine, yes, when you see Jerry Ryan in her cat suit, it feels a little... Well, why yeah, is she here? Bit. But her character and her performance, I thought, were really terrific. Agreed. And handled well throughout the rest of, of Voyager. And there's a lot of interesting mythology that the Borg were given, like Unimatrix Zero. Now, I I might not have liked it because of where Q-Who was and how I like them as being this locus of the universe. But once you've moved away from that, I thought Voyager did some really compelling and interesting stuff with those characters. Um, and and with with the Borg and also eight species what eight four seven two mm-hmm. the, the 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 really scary species the really really scared from fluidic space which my theory was that the space amoebas from the immunity syndrome had taken over the entire you always have a theory Rob <laughs> and they're even more scary to the budget but I thought you guys did some really really interesting stuff how did those situ- how did those develop how did you guys develop like when you decided to bring on seven of nine. Um, did you have any kind of a an arc, or did you have a direction you wanted? Some vague notions of where you were going to take that character, and 
Well, I think, again, the general arc was that she was going to become more human, but in a way she was going to do it kicking and screaming. That she really, you know, did not want to be taken from the collective. It's not like she was coming to us saying, please rescue me. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we grabbed her and we pulled her out. And she was not happy about it. And I think that also helped us get around the premise that in the future, humans don't have conflicts with each other because she could have as much conflict as she wanted to. Right. right. And so she was a character, again, kind of like the doctor, that we could give all these rude, snarky comments to mm. <laughs> because she could get away with it without violating kind of the, the Roddenberry directive. Um, so I think that we all kind of saw it as, as fun, as a chance to have a, 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 a socially incorrect and awkward character who could be hostile. And we all just clung to that because you didn't have that opportunity pretty much yeah. anywhere else in Trek. You yes. also did a good job of showing young Annika and the, the, her family and what happened to her mm-hmm. and how horrifying that really was. Yeah. When you're, you're, uh, I always liked the fact that you guys went there and, and really delved into that. Yeah, that it was, it was a trauma. You know, again, like Picard, you know, it was this traumatic experience. But in a way, it became like a Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing and that mm-hmm. she became identified with her captors and so when she was rescued from them she didn't want to go yeah i think it's a very imaginative character i mean it really filled what it gave voyager what it needed which was its spock its data mm-hmm. you know um it's it's i wouldn't even say it's odo because i feel like deep space nine is his own beast it didn't really everyone was an outsider in that well, show in a good a character way that helps us reflect on what it yeah. is to be human. and 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 jerry's performance obviously is, is great and it gave the show you know, a lot of life. Now, obviously, there was a tendency to lean on that character, mm-hmm. perhaps a little too much, but um, but it was you know a very effective addition, uh, you know, t- to the to the show. And, and like you said, it's like for a show that's always moving, it's you know it's very hard to define the Delta Quadrant because because every time you meet it's someone changing. again, it's it makes the galaxy smaller. So smaller, exactly. Yeah. And also, there's an interesting thing that happened with the Borg, the actresses that played the Borg Queen bringing, of course, Alex Krieger back at the end, but, and Captain Janeway. You know, she, Janeway now had a, a, a Koloth or a foil that she yes. could revisit. And then Susanna Thompson also played the right. Queen. Right, and, and she, was, she was great too. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to see, look, once I've moved away from my prejudicial ideas about what the board No, because both are true. <laughs> what you said is true, yes. but then if, if you're going to accept that that's not the direction they're going and they're also making a TV series that has to be sustainable, then... The, the way they dealt with it is also legitimate, right? right absolutely. But I, I always thought that was kind of neat, you know, bringing bringing the the last episode of the show when you're dealing with Janeway having to go back and confront the actual bringing back the real the real board queen. It was, <laughs> it was really I I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, I was not. It's funny because I have been revisiting uh, Voyager episodes. We were not big fans of it when it was first on. And I have gone back and I've sort of watched it out of sequence without mm-hmm. any any preconceived notions. I, I I find myself going back to Voyager more than any other Star Trek series on Netflix hmm. because I just ha- don't know them as well. Hmm. And episodes like Blink of an Eye or um, Living Witness are some of my mm-hmm. favorite Star Trek episodes ever. And you go back and you watch these two parters like Workforce, you know, one and two. I don't know why I love that episode so much, but I do. You know, there's a lot of really interesting science fiction concepts on that show. And I think the Borg episodes, you know, really got into dealing with transhumanism and virtual realities and where we are moving as people. And I think they were they were uh, they're more fascinating to me now the more I watch them. 
Well, you know, it's funny because it's funny you say that because, you know, in the course of uh, I, I was for a long time very dismissive of Voyager and, and particularly when I was researching my books and Ed was writing the Voyager chapters and, you know, we were talking to people and, you know, that was always my go to joke. You know, I love Star Trek except for Voyager, you know, <laughs> and 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 and. Um, but over the course of, of like talking to people and fans and meeting fans and, and, and doing research, what I've come to find is that the show had such a profound impact on a generation of women who for the first time had a role model in uh, Kate Mulgrew's character, M. Janeway, and then also that it had the same kind of impact, the way Shatner was sort of a Kirk, a role model for us, an aspirational character, that... Um, it, it, and it had the same impact of wanting to go into the sciences, wanting to go into um, uh, um, engineering, into you know all, all this kind of STEM, uh, all because of, of Voyager. And I, I, I reassess my dismissiveness mm-hmm. of the show, and 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 you know it's it really was very eye opening to kind of see that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now I wouldn't argue that it's you know my favorite Star Trek series. It's not, but um, you know I'm a lot less dismissive of it, and I've gone back in the episodes I've I've rewatched. Many of them I adore, you know. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with where what introduces you to Star Trek. Sure. You know, I mean, Next Generation is what introduced me, and so that's my favorite series. Mm-hmm. I imagine if you started with Deep Space Nine or with Voyager, it might be something similar. Because to you, that's that's sort of the, the canon. You know, that's that's the real Star Trek. And then these other things are just kind of pretenders. And so I think that it's true that if Voyager was kind of your, your entry Star Trek, then it probably, again, seems to you like the authentic Trek. Yeah, I mean, it's like James Bond. I mean, there's the the same axiom. It's like your favorite James Bond is whichever one you grew up on. So if you're a millennial, then you love Daniel Craig. You know, if you grew up watching on the ABC Sunday Night Movie, then (laughs) Sean Connery, you know, and there's the generation, you're Roger Moore. So it's, and and then nobody's favorite is Timothy Dalton. And I say that, and then somebody's going to write on Twitter, you know, I love Timothy Dalton, and I didn't appreciate you uh, criticizing. Well, you know, when we, when Voyager started, you're, it's now the fourth Star Trek TV series, and there were now Star Trek character tropes that we saw intermix, like B'Elanna Torres is half human, half Klingon, just like Spock was half Vulcan and half human. And so it was a show that was sort of a copy of a copy of a copy while to us when we were watching it. Very, mm-hmm. we, we definitely felt it was a Xerox show. It was right, definitely yes. a Xerox show. So we never, we never, it, it was doomed in our minds from the get-go. Mm-hmm. But as I've gone back and watched it, like it was John Ottman, who, who's the editor and composer for a lot of Brian Singer movies. Um, John Ottman is a big Voyager fan. And, and the guy, my, Marty, the dude who cut my hair for so long, he loved Voyager too. And I got a list from him. I said, send me your 10 favorite Voyager episodes. And that's what kicked me off <laughs> going back and watching. And, and they really weren't the Borg episodes per se. There was a few Seven of Nine episodes but there was a lot of really interesting episodes, and I don't even think I ever saw them on first run. All stop. Shields to maximum. Stand by all weapons. It's like a ghost ship. They want us to reactivate a Borg ship. <gasps> Voyager, emergency beam out. Commander! Get us out of here. It's the Star Trek Voyager. You absolutely must watch. That plays into a theory that uh, Brian Fuller uh, talks about in our book, which was that Voyager is the favorite series to a lot of gay men. 
because they, and I, I'm not sure, I forget how exactly he explains it, but talks about the fact that in, in Kate Mulgrew, there is the strength of leadership without the machismo, mm-hmm. and that's something that they're very attracted to. It was a very interesting theory, I thought. That is, yeah, that is interesting. It makes sense to me because, the, yes, my two friends would definitely agree. Yeah, well, that's why, because knowing John and your hairdresser, I suspect um, yes, that, that that it made me think of that. Yes, um, and I, you, you know, you might be right. And they, uh, Seven of Nine is also a, a character that people, I think, uh, gravitated toward as well because she wasn't happy, you know, and she she's, they didn't feel comfortable so much in her skin around the rest of these people and had to sort of make her way as an outsider. The last time I saw John was at some Star Trek charity auction. And I remember there was a couple of things that weren't, this is a while ago, that wasn't selling and it was for a good cause. So John and I just started buying everything <laughs> because we were like trying to help the auction. It was like, I think one of Chase's auctions or something. And it was so, we and I ended up with a bunch of signed Star Trek scripts and I don't know what else. It's like, it was, was this one of them? No, that was not one of them, but it was some really dreadful episodes. You know, the, uh, the Borg also, if, if I read Star Trek novels probably more than I should. And I, I will admit it. Not probably, but more than you should. <laughs> the there is a trilogy of books, the Destiny trilogy by David Mack, and in that trilogy of books, the Borg invade the Alpha Quadrant en masse. They come back with seven thousand cubes. Wow! And they that's just, a lot of cubes. They just lay waste to the, like like they destroy delight, delightful Star Trek planets like Deneva. Gets destroyed by the Borg. Half the half the Federation is just delightful. laid waste. That was a delightful planet. Was this pre the parasites, the neural parasites? No, that was or post neural parasites. Beautiful planet. That, but but so if you guys want to read, and the, it deals with the origin of, origins of the Borg, and not only is it great Star Trek, but it's just awesome science fiction. I remember that time F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote this great. No, I'm just saying that. I, I mean, the, and, and Peter Peter David in his book Vendetta postulated well, that you the know, Doomsday Machine was built for fighting the Borg. I was just going to say, I want to bring it back for a second to the Borg, because we were talking about this before uh, we came on the air, or whatever you call streaming. I guess it's not like on the air, you're on the web, whatever we're doing. But you were talking about the, the uh, fan fiction, or not even fan fiction, but the novels have dealt with the Borg and the origins of the Borg, whether it's the Reeve Stevens or Peter David. Can you talk a little bit about well, that? Well, yeah, the, yeah, the Reeve Stevens. <laughs> Shatner gets resurrected at the end of Generations using Borg technology. Ooh, you know, and that, that was that I want to say. It was, it was it was after the ashes of Eden, you know, and and because of Spock, and and they postulate V'ger had something to do with the origin of the Borg, and there's all kinds of cool. That's going to be the in novels. the next director's edition. <laughs> well, no, the 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 theory was that the Voyager probe got in the influence of the Borg homeworld, uh-huh. and the Borg are the one that turned it into V'ger. That's right. That's right. Huh. And now, how does Nomad play into this? Well. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Tanru? No. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's interesting. And, of course, um, you were saying that uh, Peter David also had a big board. Well, in Vendetta, yeah. he, yeah. he, he, he That, that does, deals a lot with Guinan and the the Doomsday Machine now, from the original series. When you were on the show, him. were you aware, did you read any? I mean, it was just in Discovery. They actually hired a Star Trek novelist, uh, Kristen Beyer, a Voyager novelist. You know, who was And her books are great. Fan fiction. And so... My question to you is, like, was this something you were aware of at all? I mean, obviously, when you're working on a show, you don't have time to re- do anything, you know, <laughs> let alone do your grocery shopping. But 
how much was there anything that came up? I'm sure you had people who wrote the novels coming to pitch to you, but oh yeah, we did. Um, I was aware that there were novels, um, but no, I, I didn't read any of them. Uh, but I know that uh, like Brian Fuller, I think had read some of them, and because when we were sitting in the room, you know, coming up with story ideas, of course, the most common you know reaction to any story idea is, oh no, we did that. In, you know, season six of Next Generation. Oh, no. In season three of, you know, Deep Space Nine. And I, I think Brian occasionally said, oh, no, that was in a novel at such and such, <laughs> which we felt like we could do. You know, that that wasn't duplicating to us because I guess, you know, for us, it was just the TV shows and the movies right. were essentially the things that we could not. If it had been done in one of those, we right. couldn't do it again. But sure. the novels, I think we felt were not as well known. Because books aren't real. Well, well they're, not considered, <laughs> they're not considered canon, so... You yeah, know, it's it's if it's not in the show, um, but it, 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 you know it's really interesting because you think okay after Voyager, the Borg are done right uh, because Enterprise was a prequel and we you know the the, the crew, Star Trek crew did not meet them until Next Generation. That's where you'd be wrong because you you overlooked Sweeps Month and didn't realize <laughs> that if there was a way to bring back Star Trek's most popular adversary, they're going to find one. So of course the Borg do return in Enterprise. But, well, they but, met them in First Contact. Right, that, that's the thing. The, right. the Borg and Enterprise are from this Borg sphere that, that was blown up and some and of it was contact. frozen. They are possessed of one mind. You will be assimilated. Driven by one will and intent on destroying one ship. They're charging weapons. Now! Prepare for Enterprise's first encounter with... The Borg. Keep firing. In the one-hour Star Trek event, where resistance is futile. We've been boarded. Next Star Trek Enterprise. Right. So it's right. canon. So it is canon. No, but my question to you is, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing how they found the way to bring the they Borg found into a, way. a... Life will find a way into um, in Enterprise. I, I, I haven't seen the episode, but... Have anyone else? <laughs> it wasn't a bad. It wasn't a bad episode. I mean, it, it did feel. It, you know, they wanted to bring the Borg in, and it does feel a little forced. Contrived. But mm. it, there is a good canonical reason why they were there, right? And that's that's one of the things that I liked is that when people look as the shows moved on, and 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 canon became more or less of a factor depending on what you were <laughs> trying to do. It was nice that I could watch an episode like that and go, okay. I'll be- I believe it. I mm-hmm. understand why it's happening. Yeah, it's reasonable. As well, once you have time travel, pretty much anything is possible. You can say, oh, that was an alternate timeline Yeah, right. for anything. That's true. And why the Borg don't feel the need? Why do they have to travel to Earth and then time travel? Why don't they just go back in time at their home world and then... Well, that's the real question, know. isn't it? <laughs> why yeah. come to Earth... Yeah. Why why run a gauntlet? Because there wouldn't be a movie if that was the case. Because right. not pretty that quickly. Bright. So so let me ask you before we wrap up this con- fascinating conversation about uh, the Borg. Um, favorite Borg episode? What you of all? If you look mm. at Borg, what, what's your favorite Borg episode, Rob? You know what I I do have to say just because watching it was so thrilling is Best of Both Worlds Part One because I was already scared of the Borg from Two Who <laughs> and and they made him. Still, they were very, very scary. And when Patrick Stewart was turned into a Borg, I wasn't thinking to myself, like, I don't like the fact that they're making the Borg more human. At the time, I couldn't believe it. Like, people don't remember. You took the lead of your show and turned him into a Borg? I mean, this was shocking. 
It was shocking. Well, people it, thought it was a contract negotiating plea that Patrick wanted more money, and now hey, we and there actually is some truth to that. Yes, that yeah. that that, that, that Patrick was asking for more money, and it gave them the out to mm-hmm. make Riker the captain and not bring Patrick if they couldn't come to terms with him. I mean, all of that episode was shocking. Shelby yeah. and Riker, everything that was going on. I mean, it was a beautifully done episode of television well, in general. And, and what Rob fails to mention <laughs> is, is, you know, yeah, now if you're watching it on Netflix. Oh, that was that was cool. Boop. Let's watch another one. And then let you yeah. watch the next episode. <laughs> yeah. you know. But then... In real time. We, you had the, to wait. Yeah. There hadn't been a Star Trek two parts since The Menagerie. And here you are, and it's like you've been praying that one day the show's going to get good. It finally does. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, Captain Picard's aboard. Fire to be continued. And then three months you're waiting yeah. for the new season to start. As Patrick Stewart said, he was driving on PCH. And like a convertible or something, and he, a car had pulled up next to him, and someone turned in the car and said, "You've ruined my summer." It was the who shot Jr. of its time, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I for mean, sure. Was, yeah, I, I have to I have to go back farther and say that Q Who is my favorite because because of the fact that they were still unknown and creepy and scary, and you know they took a freaking core sample out of the uh, out of the D. Yeah. And that was awesome. That's awesome. The visual effects by Image G were amazing. Amazing. You know, taking yeah. taking the deck apart. You hadn't seen that kind of damage to the Enterprise since Star Trek II, since the Reliant. You know, <laughs> yes. it was like cutting into the. And it was so precise. Yeah. 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 The way it was just like sucked out. You, you, it multiple. I believe decks. that's blown well, and out. And it was sir. miniature work, so it was like they created the little people in the deck, and everything was really cool. You know, now people take that for granted. Yeah. You got the really cool the, unless you're one of those people. Yeah. Then that's kind of sucked out into yeah, space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. So what about you, Lisa? What's... I, I think I'm going to have to agree that Best of Both Worlds Part 1, uh, because I was you know, a huge Trek fan and watching it in real time mm-hmm. and having that suspense was pretty awesome. Wow. So I'm the tiebreaker. I mean, either I can tie it up with the Q-Who or I can or maybe I'll pick another episode. <laughs> There's no other episode. It's either Q-Who <laughs> or Best of Both Worlds or First Contact, I guess, or First Contact. But um, I uh, I would have to go with Boy, I'm really torn, but I think I go with Best of Worlds, Both Worlds Part 1 because of that larger gestalt, the whole idea of the to be continued and the um, and what it meant to Star Trek The Next Generation. It cemented the legacy of the show as an important Star Trek show, the second greatest Star Trek show of all time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's so much about it that is um, uh, important and um uh, but I, I love Q-Who, and I could easily have gone with Q-Who because I agree that in terms of mood and atmosphere and creepiness, it, it's way better than Best of Both Worlds. But Best of Both Worlds has the better character drama. And, you know, again, the Q thing is such a MacGuffin for it all. Um, you know, so it, with Best of Both Worlds, it's a little more earned and has that great teaser where they beam down to the planet that we're in the center of town. It's a giant crater that the, you know, Borg have taken a piece out of. Yeah. Um, it's a shame that they didn't arc things back then the way they do now, so that the original plan, which had been neutral zone, would lead to Times Squared, would lead to um, Q Who, would have been more planned out. But you know, it was the it was the late '80s, early '90s. It's like they didn't know anything back then. It's true. We were ignorant. <laughs> we, were ignorant. <laughs> we didn't know anything. But uh, I also think that the reper- the um, repercussions that it had on Picard, that they didn't just drop that. It wasn't just like this one-time experience, but that he kept, you know, that was a significant trauma, and it did actually affect that character 
for episodes and movies to come. I totally agree with that. It's such a great point because, you know, you look at something as brilliant as City on the Edge of Forever and, you know, Edith Keeler dies, spoiler alert, and uh, uh, Captain Kirk is completely destroyed by, you know, giving up the one true love of his life, the Tracy Vincenzo, the Diana Rigg, you know, is she's and 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 um and then next week, you know, there's no repercussions. He's off fighting the neural parasites. But uh on in Operation Annihilate. But um what's so awesome is uh that they dealt with the, you know, and you could never see that kind of vulnerability in a Star Trek character before, where he is really dealing, you know, and it's that cathartic moment where he finally, the Captain Patrick Stewart, you know, Shakespeare, you know, he breaks down over this traumatic experience he had. And, and, and the fact that they were able to, and it was very hard to get that greenlit, and the fact that Pillar and Moore really went to the mattresses to get family made when everyone was fighting them and they or they wanted some really dumb sci-fi B story to be added to justify it. I mean, thank God they got their way because it's one of the great hours of of of, of Star Trek television and uh, it's exactly what Lisa said. You see there the the seed of serialized television or serialized Star Trek being planted. And again, it's a character arc. It's not a story arc and that's what's so great about it. Well, it would have been also interesting we were talking about earlier the spokesperson for the Borg that if the Borg were somehow affected by Locutus the way Picard was mm-hmm. and the the Borg were actually altered like they they had a revelation so the Borg we, we they were always trying to do offshoots like these Borg were cut off so they'll be different but what if the whole collective learned something from Picard that they didn't know before and they became even more dangerous yeah. or they developed human yeah. desires about the they wanted to conquer suddenly instead of conquest being built into their sort of DNA or whatever. What if they wanted revenge? Well, or something I, I like that. I think First Contact does deal with that a little bit by uh, the Queen talking about Locutus. Mm. Uh, a little yeah. bit. Touches on that just a, well, just a bit. Well, I'm glad that they brought back the Borg and not Mark Twain. Anyway, um, <laughs> I just want to say that this has been a fantastic discussion about the Borg. I really want to thank our uh, special guest, Lisa Klink, for being here with us. And I hope you'll come back to talk about other um, corners of the Star Trek universe. We don't have to just have to talk about Voyager. As a longtime Next Generation fan, it'd be great to have your insights in the future. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. That would be great. And I'm, I'm saying that with a, it's not a polite, like, oh, yeah, we'd love to have you come back, like they said to Paul Fix on Where No Man Has Gone Before. Right. Hey, we'd love to have you come back and play Dr. Piper. Sometime. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometime, never. Like, we'd actually like to have you come back. So uh, I, I want to, and of course, have uh, it's always great to have Rob Burnett back, um, and we'll, he'll be back with us again soon. Uh, Darren, um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Inglorious Trek. And uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say and fu- ideas for future shows or if you feel differently. Uh, you Who knows? You Maybe you love Descent. You listen to the wrong podcast, but maybe you do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, please rate us at five stars. And I shouldn't say that right after I've just insulted our yeah. audience. Uh, for those of you who weren't insulted, please. For those two in- of you who weren't insulted. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If not, don't. And um, there are new episodes of this podcast every Monday at 17.01 uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, So make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And uh, finally, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at the Electric Search Network for making this show possible. And uh, on behalf of Darren, Robert, Lisa, myself, we want to say in every revolution, there is one man or woman with a vision. May your way be as pleasant. Let's see what's out there. Engage. Thank you.
my prayers are for you. Good night, sweetheart. I'll be watching all you. Tears and parting may make us quarrel.